Hello, and welcome back to the Strange Water Podcast. Today, we are talking with Joey Santoro, one of the more prominent builders during the DeFi 2.0 era of the last cycle. When Joey agreed to come on Strange Water, I was so excited because there's so much to talk with him about. Building one of the hottest protocols of 2021, successfully pulling off one of crypto's first major mergers, leading an organization through controversy, and so much more. But of all the things I wanted to talk to Joey about, there was something clearly at the top of my list. ERC-4626. We'll unpack what ERC-4626 is and how it came to be during the upcoming conversation. But for now, all you need to know is that ERC-4626 is a specification that has been explicitly accepted by the Ethereum community and can now be considered part of the Ethereum protocol. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to Joey about ERC-4626, because ERC-4626 not only represents a tool that Joey and Faye Protocol needed, but it also represents an organic, community-led contribution to the standards and norms that form the world computer. On top of being a successful entrepreneur and builder, Joey has earned one of the most precious titles, Ethereum Contributor. While this conversation is a deep dive on all things ERC-4626, including the history, the challenges, and the future developments, it is also a bigger picture conversation about how to directly contribute to and improve Ethereum. Just like it's always been from the start, the magic of Ethereum is about how a decentralized community can come together to build. And I hope this conversation helps you see what that actually means in practice. One more thing before we begin, please do not take financial advice from this or any podcast. Ethereum will change the world one day, but you can easily lose all of your money between now and then. All right, without further ado, Joey Santoro. Joey, thank you so much for joining us on the Strange Water Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Rex. Man, I, I'm really excited about this one. Like, I have to, uh, I think your kind of like the beginning of your moment in the sun was like just when I was entering crypto. And I remember like one of the more impactful bankless episodes I uh, listened to was like you um, and uh, whoever was on the Rari side, but talking about that, the merger. And, um, then again, like your epicenter uh, podcast, um, talking about like just your. That's when I realized that you guys were doing protocol owned liquidity and like some of these things I thought were related to Olympus Dow first. So anyway, blah 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 blah. But I'm just super excited to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I guess thanks for joining me on the pod. <laughs> yeah, of course it's going to be fun. Cool. So um, before I, I like eventually where we want to get this conversation to is um, like how you've become like so deeply passionate about contributing to Ethereum through the ERC process. But um, like, let's like kind of walk through your journey a little bit through there. So like, number one, how would you um, find crypto, find Ethereum, and then like maybe talk through your journey to uh, like starting Faye? Yeah. So like a lot of people in the space, I kind of found crypto early on, maybe like 2017. So that cycle. So I wasn't like the super OGs who made it in one of the two cycles before that, but right around when Ethereum and DeFi and smart contracts were starting to become a thing, 
I mean, this was before even the term DeFi existed, but but there were some cool protocols like MakerDAO, the DAO hack had already happened. So this was like right in like that really cool time, the price of everything started ripping up. So um, I was in college at the time at, at Duke and I took a class that was taught by students because this was still so early. There was no professor led courses. I mean, there was some in the business school. I actually worked really closely with the professor Cam Harvey at Duke, but there was no undergrad courses taught by professors at that time. And so the students taught them because Duke had this cool program where students can teach classes. So I learned about Bitcoin. I learned about Ethereum and Ethereum always just like captured my heart. Like a lot of people, the idea of a fully compute that, you know, infrastructure that you can build tokens on open DeFi, whatever, smart contracts, all of this um, really captured my intellectual curiosity between computer science, which was my major. And I had a lot of interest in personal finance and finance in general. So from there, I started learning Solidity, started teaching. Uh, I taught a course, actually the same style, but focus on development. And then eventually, you know, that led down the line. First of all, um, I went to Stanford. And so I want to say we're joining the ACC. So I guess we're now rivals. Oh, hell yeah. Best conference. I know. Yeah. Well, I guess that's how I feel now, too. <laughs> but um, anyway, the... Uh... So, um, I, and I, I've been really involved with uh, Stanford postgrad and something that I've really noticed is that while there's more and more focus in computer science, um, in like undergraduate, it, it's not like clear that there's a ton of energy in crypto and like Stanford there is, but like the real black hole of interest is in like AI and, um, a lot of AI stuff. So my question to you is like, what? in that moment of like undergrad and explore and like you could have been taken by anything from like, you know, cryptography for the sake of like, you know, NSA defense stuff to AI to um, like the, where you landed in this like somewhat amazing, somewhat like skeevy part of the internet. Yeah. I mean, as you, you know, you could see by my story or anybody else's story, I feel like crypto is the lowest time to impact out of any industry, especially in 2017. I mean, everything was just written by 20 year olds and like kids who had just graduated from college. And like, you know, some of the most famous devs were even in high school at the time. It was like just a crazy space because, uh, you know, in retrospect, looking at all the risks that people didn't talk about, um, there's a reason why it was only the most idealistic, bright eyed, you know, people who were building in the space. Um, but yeah, that, that's how I ended up in crypto. I was interested in finance. I had a computer science background and I wanted to make an impact like a lot of my peers. And so crypto was a space to do that, um, especially yeah, in, in, around that time. So that's, that's why. And now a lot of people are pivoting and doing whatever. I'm not going anywhere. Crypto is where I see myself for the foreseeable future, probably not forever, but I still feel like there's a lot of work to do and, um, you know, and it's fun and exciting. For sure. I mean, I think the mark that like the, uh, this industry has really matured and uh, has lost like whatever specialness is left is when like it's not really leaving crypto or entering crypto like we're just part of like the tech landscape you know no one talks about like someone leaving like a fintech to go to a biotech or that kind of thing or or consumer web to this part of like SaaS, you know crm it's um 
I think like the mark of adoption will be that this isn't like something weird and like something for misfits. It'll be like just something that, you know, is part of a job you take. <laughs> Got it. So you're saying that that that's not the current state of affairs. No, that's when not, we yeah. that's when we made it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got Sorry. it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Yeah, I think uh, for now it's like, oh, staying in, staying out. But AI is like that. And like, I think there's some tribalism. Like that's more of a feature of the internet than like, uh, you know, I, like if you if you leave a domain of tech, you like you leave health tech, you leave what I still feel like there's a community around each of these subdomains of technology where it feels like you're leaving, you're leaving your discipline. And so tech Tech is the substrate, that's the con common denominator, but the actual applied knowledge and the field is where you get these tribes, you get, you know, whatever. And so to me, I feel like DeFi is that. It's like finance tech, but the future of, of it's literally the future of FinTech in my mind. And so maybe we blur the lines between normal FinTech and DeFi at a certain point. Um, but if, if someone leaves, I, I still hope we're sad, you know, if someone goes and pivots to like Fred Ursham just the other day tweeted that he's going to longevity, which I, I think is awesome because that's my second favorite thing after crypto. But, you know, still, you know, we're losing a Titan, I guess. Yeah, I know. Fair enough. And I, I, I'll eat those words immediately. I was just thinking about uh, one of my buddies who works for like a like a, creating tools for developers for web two companies. And I just saw him post like that. He's like hosting a talk on LinkedIn and it was just, I didn't understand any of the acronyms and I'm like, you know what? I guess like everyone has their audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> let's move us back to uh, our story. So you were at Duke, you like took a class that was kind of student run. Then you taught a class that was obviously student run. Um, for how long between like your first kind of uh, entrepreneurial venture and graduating and um, you know, what, what do you think it kind of took to get there? Yeah. So the timeline there was, it was my, the end of my first year at Duke when I first started hearing about crypto and then I was only there for three years. So by my last year I was teaching that course and then um, I was also a research assistant for the professor I mentioned, Cam Harvey, um, and we wrote a book called "Define the Future of Finance." That was actually my first um, public initiative in crypto, I guess, because before it was like my personal projects and like Duke stuff, which is kind of in a bubble. Um, so I, I worked on that book. That was in 2019, where we started writing the first drafts of it, because you know, DeFi at that point was just a total renaissance. It was like Compound and Aave and synthetics and all these new yield protocol white papers coming out all the time. Um, some of like the most classic white papers that were not L1 protocol white papers, but more like DeFi layer, I think all came out around 2019 in that era. Um, so that was obviously really awesome. And so we took a lot of those ideas, put them in the book. And then while I was writing the book, um, I had this idea for a yield aggregator obviously, because I was an active compound Aave DYDX user at the time. That, that was before DYDX did um, futures trading with perpetual futures, but they were doing um, that like basically exactly what Aave and compound were doing um, with like margin trading. And so all, they all were very similar. 
I was like, let me make a yield aggregator. And I wrote a white paper and I started writing some solidity. Um, but I didn't have any like full stack experience or front end. So I, and I was working as a software engineer at Okta. It's like web two SAS, whatever. Um, and so I, I kind of gave up on the project cause I couldn't make a UI that worked. And I had all these like dev environment issues and whatever, but I really enjoyed like the mechanism design the math behind how do we make a protocol that was totally decentralized that you could rebalance and do like a discounted cash flow and the yield update to create a bounty for a keeper. Like it was no admin keys at all was like the philosophy behind this. Um, it's actually funny that that was my first idea in crypto. And then I ended up writing the 4626 standard, which would have made the yield aggregator way easier to develop. Um, now that I think about it, it's kind of funny, but anyway, Yarn launched literally like three weeks later or not even maybe like months later, but it was around that time became like a billion dollar project or something crazy within months of launching. So I was like, okay, the next time I have a good idea, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go into crypto full time. This is where my heart is. And that was kind of the, what it took. So lo and behold, my next good idea was a stable coin. Um, and that ended up turning into Fay Protocol. And I've, I've told the story on many podcasts about how I got in there, but it involved like basically all of the algo stables of late 2020 and how I thought that they were all going to die and that we needed to make a better one. And that that's uh, the ideas of protocol on liquidity. And then some of the other early Fay ideas that didn't end up staying in the protocol as we continued to evolve. Um, but yeah, that's... That's sort of the linear progression, or maybe it's not linear, but that's the progression anyway of how I got into the space fully. That's like super cool. And because not only is that a, you know, story of you, you know, recognizing trends and like kind of figuring out what where opportunity is and just, you know, like kind of the blocking and tackling of entrepreneurship. But uh, I guess like the difference between some uh, crypto Twitter influencer and like a founder is like the willingness to... And, and just like the conviction to take the leap and to invest and like, you know, put all the chips down on like the thing that, you know, um, is going to change the world. And like what entrepreneurship is not really about, um, like the wins when you're like looking back, it's like the, the, the journey that you took to get there and like who, how it turns you into someone today. So, um, you know, I, there's, I have listened to most of them. There's like a thousand podcasts out there on, that you've done about like Fay Protocol and like kind of the legacy of that. And so i uh, love to give you an opportunity to talk about that if you want. But um, what I'm interested in is like the, the thing that uh, I guess has been most resilient about the Fay Protocol was um, this like ERC4... Four, four, six, two, six. Yeah. 4626, uh, the vault standard, right? And so... Um, I guess like before I unpack, uh, like why I think that, and, and we talk a little bit more about that. Can you, uh, one, say anything you want to say about Faye, but two, talk about like, what was the moment where you guys realized that the problem that you're having is so large that like, you need to make sure that all of Ethereum like comes together and solves it. And this is not just like kind of a product or a feature that you guys need to deploy. Yeah, totally. So there, there are kind of, there's two interesting threads that came together to create the CIP. One was my um, 
college dream of writing an EIP from when I first learned about the Ethereum process. I was like, one day I'm going to write one and it's going to be awesome. Um, little did I know. And then, um, but, but, you know, practically speaking, the real reason and throughout the Faye journey, um, like you mentioned, Faye was kind of an epic journey. There were so many different um, moments that the project had, good, bad, ugly, and um, we really tried everything. We wanted to stay on the edge. That's kind of always, like you mentioned, been my um, my lens on entrepreneurship. It's making the thing that doesn't exist yet that needs to exist and seeing the trends and seeing. Um, so we had a ton of innovations in stable coins, obviously, but also in how DAOs can operate. And, you know, some of the ideas were ours. Some of the ideas were um, other people's that we borrowed, like uh, optimistic governance was a really cool idea that we took from the gyro stable team. And now they're on mainnet and they're doing great. Um, so everyone's kind of just like, we're all, we're trying to put the pieces together to make something that works. And, um, so when we were, so when we were building the kind of the, the most, the best ideas that we had were the ones that were kind of obvious, but no one had done yet. So, you know, in a certain sense, like that was kind of the yield aggregator idea. Like I pitched one of my friends who was a VC back, you know, in 2019 and he was like, dude, we get this pitch like every week. <laughs> so it wasn't like a, it wasn't like I was a genius for coming up with that. It was a completely obvious thing. But it was the details. It was doing it right, getting it out there. That, and that's what entrepreneurship is. So um, that was 4626. That was, I firmly believe, my greatest creation in the project. And it wasn't just me. There was four other authors from the Faye Rari team and from Yield and from Yearn. We all came together and we made this standard that is now being used heavily. It's like a huge percentage of DeFi TVL is now in 4626 vaults. And I think that number is gonna be only going up because it has such um, product market fit, I guess is not the right term. It's like interface developer fit or whatever. Um, but yeah, and that idea was something that was absolutely necessary and nobody just really like put their nose to the grindstone and had the i think it was kind of a beautiful thing because between the tribe dow yield protocol and yearn we had enough mind share and community adoption and and distribution even it really is a distribution problem anyone can go write an eip but if you don't have the connections to the teams that are building these things and the brand to back it up then it's probably not going to get adopted so it was kind of a perfect storm where the tribe DAO is big enough and Yearn and all these other, you know, protocols. Um, and everyone agreed. It was such an obvious standard that everyone needed because everyone's rolling. And the, so maybe we can zoom out, but to, to, to kind of put a pin in this thought, 4626 was definitely our greatest contribution. And so it's going to be really cool to kind of unpack why that is and how it got there and why it didn't exist before. So maybe I could pause um no for sure let's let's like let's tell this narrative re narratively right like so what in in retrospect it's obvious that like okay there's so many that are these like yield farm like um opportunities let's standardize it and create um a way for this to become like composable and and all the magic that is DeFi, right but um what what was going on in that moment what were you guys trying to build where you realized that um 
it doesn't like this is a bigger problem than our developers that like can just contribute to inner you know like duct taping a solution that just like gets the thing into something that works for us like how how do you as a leader recognize like this is something that like requires like the whole community and not like a problem that is within my organization yeah so like i mentioned it wasn't even a hindsight that it was obvious it was literally every single team that had anything that smelled like a token vault either had already thought about writing this eip themselves which just didn't actually allocate the bandwidth to do it or they immediately recognized that it was necessary so it was um i guess what i would say is there so i'll speak generally and then specifically about like the narrative of how we came up with it um so generally there's two types of people who would use 4626 there's someone who would implement it at the base layer so that would be like a lending protocol like compound or ave and the the concept of a tokenized vault was essentially the c token compound came up with the idea of having a token that holds another token um, that really didn't exist in DeFi before because they were so early. Com this was Compound V2. And they did a ton of innovation in Compound V2. But I think the biggest one was the C token itself, where you have a fungible representation of your lending position. Um, and that is essentially a vault. It's a vault that in it's a yield bearing vault that increases the C token has an exchange rate relative to the underlying. It increases whatever. Um, and so there's all these implementers. Ave is an implementer, but they did rebasing. And then everybody, all these sushi yield farms are also synthetics had a yield farm. Like everybody had a token vault. And they all, you know, did basically the same thing with some modifications, but um, but everyone rolled their own implementation. And that's because like every dev has their style and there's no like naming conventions and parameter choices and, you know, the idiosyncrasies of your protocol. Um, and everyone could, you know, congregate on the same standard, but everyone wants to make their gas optimization or add some feature or whatever, or have some naming that's like legally safe. Like this is a problem that we have with Abe where we showed them the 4626 standard and they were like, why would you use these finance terms? You should use like token DAO terms that you know, or like MakerDAO, where every word is like nonsense. Like I suck the vat to rug the the you know duck or whatever. I like yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of obvious reasons why implementers don't, um, you know, don't really they roll their own things. So the big piece was integrators. So there was if you have like a protocol that's built on top of a token vault, like a tranching protocol where you can have junior and senior tranches, or you can have literally a yield aggregator. You're in V3 today and Cove and some other projects are yield aggregators built on top of 4626, um, which is a really obvious use case for it. So the integrators, once they get big enough, then people automatically use the standard because you get distribution and integrations for free. So the problem is, is like a chicken and egg. It's like any two-sided marketplace where you need integrators to exist to make it worth it for implementers. And then you need implementers to actually start implementing it to make it 
more obvious for new integrators to come in and, you know, builds and then the ecosystem evolves this way. So that was the, um, that's the lens for how, why it didn't exist yet. And so in our case, um, we had, so I was working on fuse with some of the Rari devs and they had a feature that they were coming out called, uh, plugins where you would take the idle liquidity from the fuse pool and put it into another yield source. And the way that they had implemented it, um, fuse and compound were very close to the bytecode limit on Ethereum, which is like, if you're a solidity developer, this is like the bane of your existence where Ethereum only allows like 24 kilobytes for your smart contract. And if you go over that, um, in terms of code size and you literally can't even deploy to mainnet. And that's not a lot of room, especially if you want to have sufficiently complex functionality. So, um, so for fuse, they were at the bytecode limit and they wanted to add this plugins feature. And so I was kind of hacking away and I was like, what if we standardized an interface for this was internal standardized in an internal sense, not in like a, Oh, let's make any IP sense. What if we standardized, a interface where we could send the liquidity to uh you know to a vault literally that would we could deposit and withdraw from and just abstract away tokens entering and leaving the vault um leaving the fuse pool um so we have this standard interface and then we develop these plugins that anyone can write and fuse it literally like a lego you know you plug in the lego and all the all the plugins would be interoperable across the pools and it solves the bytecode problem because all we have to do is add one function call on withdrawal and one function call on deposit. Um, and that doesn't add a lot of code complexity to the vault. And I still had to like j jigger some stuff around because we were that close to the, um, to the bytecode limit. But anyway, we had an implementation that worked. And then we looked at our roadmap and we had um, literally Rari vaults was on the roadmap. So we were going to make vaults that were going to, you know, plug into fuse pools, which we're going to plug into other stuff. Um, all super fluid collateral, you know, the kind of D 2020 DeFi summer mindset. Um, so the vaults plugged into the fuse pools. And then be because of the merger, we had this amazing product called Turbo that honestly, I'm really sad never got to see its day because I think it would have been um, a really big, well, it, it also was kind of a zero interest rate phenomenon type of protocol. So I guess because the rates hike, you know, maybe turbo wouldn't be as successful today, but I still think it was a really cool protocol. And I don't think we need, we could talk about, you could go look at the turbo. We wrote articles and, you know, go the repos open source. If you want to go launch it, talk to me, I guess. Um, <laughs> but so we had turbo, which was also basically like a vault style. You deposit your token and start earning yield on it. So that would have been used in the yield aggregator and it would have been used as a plugin strategy for Fuse. Um, so we had Turbo and then we had some other stuff down the line that well, just like ideas that we might've implemented, but that was enough for us. We were like, we have a vault protocol, we have plugins, we have um, Turbo. Why don't we just write an ERC and then everyone in the Ethereum community can write you know, vaults that are immediately up, like they integrate directly into our entire tech stack. And we just bet we went all in on 4626. Um, 
So we wrote the first draft. It was like, I was literally at home and my parents over Christmas break or could not Christmas break, but over Christmas, um, like writing the first draft of it and on the phone with transmissions 11, like, what do you think about this? You know, I think we need to add this parameter or whatever, whatever. We published the first draft in January and then um, the standard was final like three or four months later, which in retrospect was way too fast for um, for an EIP. And there are a couple pain points to 4626 that, you know, every standard does. Like people complain about ERC-20 token approvals. They People complain about a ton of things about the NFT 721 standard. So no standard is perfect. And I think 4626 ended up being really great given everything. And clearly, you know, the standard speaks for itself because now all, like basically all the blue chip protocols are using it. MakerDAO, their first class SDI, die savings rate wrapper is 4626. Basically everything in the Frax ecosystem is 4626. Um, Ave has a first class wrapper for it. Um, Yearn V3 is literally all 4626 and there's new projects that their entire project is built on top of the standard. So clearly we did something right. Um, like Cove, you know, recently just, um, launched Summon Advisor there. Um, Superform's another one that we have the 4626 Alliance. I think this would actually be a really good place to plug that, which is basically like a group of uh, projects and developers who come together to build tooling for the standard, develop new standards around it, um, and just kind of do the nuts and bolts type of work and promotion and marketing to like make sure that everyone's using the standard. There's clear tooling information, whatever you need. So um, I've been pretty involved there recently, and that's um, I still think there's a lot of work to do. So that's where. That's where I've been allocating most of my time in the Ethereum ecosystem these days. But that is, that's the history and that's how we got to where we are now in terms of where the idea came from. For sure. For sure. So, but because like you say that, I think this is uh, like you, the chef doesn't have an appreciation for like cooking, right? Because like you say, like, oh, it's just so obvious and someone had to do it, but like, man, no, no one did it. Right. And I think that, the thing that I'm hearing in this um, that like was just kind of like a detail of your story, but to me says everything is like you were running up against the bytecode limit, right? Like you had a real problem and you were like, first you're like, God, we just, we need to solve this problem for us because like this is, otherwise we're not going to be able to implement the things that we want to do. And then, you know, because you have like vision and because the entire everything about Ethereum is about open source and creating a better world computer, it made sense to like move into the scale that's ERC 20. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just hearing the history, it's like very clear to me that, uh, that that's the founder story and it's just, um, it's Ethereum. So like not every, I mean, although you just said that there's an organization, so it literally is a founder story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I didn't found the 4636 Alliance, actually. That was a super forum team and um, and Morpho. So they came together um, and made this alliance. But obviously, as one of the authors of the standard, I got pretty involved. Um, so that's that, that's so cool, right? It's like these guys started this alliance, and none of the 4626 authors were even part of the formation of this project. But now everybody's all pretty involved. So, um, and, and also, there's this kind of funny piece of irony where the... 
the 4626 standard has too many methods almost. So for integrators and, or for implementers to implement the standard, they have to write, um, you know, conformant implementation for all of these methods. There's like, you know, I think maybe 12 or 14 methods in the ERC standard itself. Um, no, there's more than that. It's at least 14 because there's four mutable methods, four max functions, four preview functions, two conversions, and a couple other like simpler ones for like metadata. So th there's a lot of code that you need to write for 4626. And so a lot of teams who implement it say, do we have to implement every method? We're running up against the bytecode limit. So we kind of we created that problem for everybody else, um, which, is, which is pretty funny. Yeah, there, there. I guess there's lessons learned there, but um, you know, it's always the answer with computer science, right? Is like if you're running into a problem, whether it's with space or with complexity or whatever, you just abstract it into a new function and make it a different developer's problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep, that's how we do it. Yeah. Cool. So um, while we're still in this story, can you reflect a little bit on like the process to take this internal thing that you're doing to the Ethereum community? Like, how did you, uh, I, you know, I guess first you took it to your community of uh, essentially yield aggregators and I'm sure assuming got buy-in. So can you talk about that process and then how you brought it to the Ethereum community and then what it's like to shepherd um, a change into the Ethereum protocol? Yeah. So like, I guess I'll start at the very last thing that you said, which is shepherd a change into the Ethereum protocol. So there are several different tracks for EIPs. Um, maybe the two most intuitive ones are core EIPs, which actually go into the Ethereum protocol and change, you know, the clients have to re-implement to maybe add some, um, yeah, add some opcode or add some logic or pre-compile or whatever. Those are core EIPs. And then you have the standards track ERCs, where you've heard of all these different token standards and whatever. Those live at the application layer. They're interfaces for developers to coordinate around. Um, and so I'm not smart enough to write core EIPs. I, I, can, I can only write the application standard style ones like ERC4626. So um, that makes it a lot easier. And I guess reflecting on the process, like if you're going to write an EIP, writing a standard is a lower barrier to entry because you know, all it needs, it needs to be well-formed. It needs to be thought through. There ha there can't be any obvious glaring security flaws or um, incompatibilities with other standards. But if all that's true, you could go through the EIP process. You go, you start in draft and then you go to review and then you go to last call and then you go to final. Um, and it's a, you're basically at the whims of the EIP editors for that process. But at least you're not like haranguing all of the, you know, uh, um, all the client teams to implement some standard and in the core protocol at all this testing. And, you know, that's a, that's a much more intense and all the politics around actually getting included in a hard fork. You don't have to worry about any of that when you write an ERC. So maybe that, that's a, a little alpha on ERC development for you. Yeah. Well, I guess the flip side of that is that because you're not, you know, fighting to get it into the you know core like applications of ethereum it's well it's relatively easy to make a erc as you're saying like then it comes the hard part right which is convincing people to actually use it yeah that, that's a good point so you actually kind of push the problem upstream where with the core eips 
all the legwork is getting it included in a hard fork and then everybody has to use it unless circle and tether say no i guess but that's that's a side tangent for sure but yeah you have to actually do the community building consensus building after the fact to get people to use the standard so the way that looked for for us was I basically DM'd all of the teams that I knew would have an obvious need for the standard on the integrators and implementers side. And the funny thing is that the integrators always said yes immediately. They were like, oh, like this is a no brainer. We're gonna implement this in our next version. Like this is amazing. Because for an integrator, it doesn't cost anything to build around a standard. And then even if the implementers don't use it, you still have to make that bespoke connector, but you're making a connector that now has Lindy everywhere. And someone else might make the connector for you because of the standard. So you kind of, it's like a vampire attack on, on implementers almost where the integrators are like saying, yep, we want 4626. And if you don't like it, we're gonna wrap your protocol anyway. So you might as well give it first class support in your next version. And we're seeing that now with um, you know Compound and Aave, where Ave just came out with a canonical wrapper, and I think their next version will probably just be natively forty six twenty six. Um, if not, they'll have even more like first class support. Same with Lido, where Wrap Steve should be a forty six twenty six already. Someone's going to make a good one that's going to get used in Spark protocol, and then you know I think people are just going to be migrating as new versions of blue chip protocols and new blue chip protocols come in. There's a slow wave towards the inevitable implementation of 4626 volts. And um, the cat's pretty much out of the bag at this point, not with the amount of TVL in the 4626 ecosystem. Um, and just getting that started, I guess, was us championing it, urine championing it, and everyone's saying, oh, this is happening. So one by one, integrators first, then implementers. And the SDI, the, so the, the happiest moment for me was when urine made a big tweet thread that said, we're going all in on 4626. I actually quote tweeted it. I was like, this is the best day of my life. Um, it wasn't actually the best day of my life, but it was one of my proudest moments as an Ethereum developer. Um, and then maybe the second biggest moment for me was when I found out that the Spark die savings rate wrapper, S-Die, savings die is 4626. And that has over two thirds of all the die in the DSR is in SDI, or I don't know, but it's close. It's a huge number. And so that seeing that is just incredible because that means that there's a big reason for, you know, whales who hold a lot of SDI to implement the standard. And now all these lending protocols where people are using SDI and rehypothecating it to try to get some extra capital efficiency. It basically creates a ton of liquidity incentives for the standard because now you have this big token that has, you know, a shit ton of tie in it. So, I mean, just to like sum up that story into a strategy, like uh, now even thinking about this, it's going to sound so obvious. So I guess my question to you is, do you have any real alpha on top of what I'm about to say? But um, it sounds like, you know, the first step to creating a successful change in Ethereum at the ERC level is one, just getting it through the process, which honestly is doable, not that big a deal. The next step is getting it used, which is much harder, but it sounds like the path to success 
is to find the biggest guys and then convince them that they need to use it and then like focus your time on energy on you know like really just the whales right whether that's tvl or whatever your metric is but like convince the top you know five guys to use it and then trust then that um that like the benefits that you knew that you were creating will kind of uh build momentum and take off from there so does that sound right and do you have anything to add <laughs> um yeah i think that's that's very much correct i would pattern match it to startups where the playbook is to like make a product get the product live and then iterate or you can't really iterate with ERCs, but you can, I guess, like that's what the draft review and last call stages are for. That's the iteration phase where you're gathering feedback from your potential customers, making the changes. And, um, and then the, you know, startups are just as easy as just like, go find product market fit. It's the same. <laughs> it's the same with the, you know, that's all you have to do. It's just one step. Um, <laughs> right. So that's obviously tongue in cheek, but. Well, I guess like last thing in this kind of strategy conversation is how much do you, if you have to sequence, uh, finding, you know, the implementers and the product market fit and the yearns of your story and actually pushing the ERC through the process, what, like, how do you think about sequencing that? Like what happens first? Do, is it important to have the partner before you go into the ERC process is it vice versa? Like how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that we're getting into the realm of, you know, narrative around a process that wasn't really as thought through as, you know, like there, there wasn't like this like intense strategy around how we're going to get 4626 adopted. It was just kind of, it, it was very natural in terms of the strategy and even implementing the standard. But what I would say is that for things that look like this, startups, writing standards, things that require community, require um, users and adoption, um, always go outside the comfort zone for like the biggest reasonable win that you can go for. So like if we at draft stage, we actually did this. We I, I, I DM'd Robert Leshner and I was like, hey, you guys need to use this standard. And he was like, yeah, okay. It's kind of like, it was like, it's too early, you know? So like Compound's not going to go change, or Ave, for example, they totally blew us off the first time because they were writing their V3. It had already like gone through two audits and the standard, we just finalized it. And we were like, hey, you guys should like edit your already audited production code to like conform to this. They were like, absolutely not, <laughs> right? So it was, it was too early for the total blue chips in 2021 when the standard first became final. So we went to like the, you know, DeFi 2.0 crowd, right? And they were all super down for it because that was the level that the standard was at. It was like, people were all trying to compete, not compete, but like make the best products and gain TVL and whatever. So it was a lot of pre-production protocols and protocols that were more like not blue chips, but DeFi 2.0 or, you know, whatever kind of DeFi summer type of projects, they were all for it. They all loved it because that's where we were at the tribe DAO, right? Um, and so we got all these guys to implement it. And then that created enough brand share and mind share around the standard. Open Zeppelin wrote a 4626, um, you know, open source, whatever for everybody to use. Now it's out of the box. 
Soulmate had one. Um, Yearn was the first blue chip to really put their flag in the ground. And that was obviously, I think, a lot from, you know, Fubulobu, who was one of the authors of the standard, did a lot of internal um, lobbying with Yearn. And then Dante got behind it and Schlag and all the other devs for V3. So um, once they put the flag in the ground, now it's like there's a blue chip out there and they were the lowest hanging blue chip, you know. And then finally MakerDAO came in, everyone started just adopting. Um, and I think over the next two or three iterations of DeFi, we'll see that it'll be pretty much everywhere. Um, and yeah, I think that now is the time for some of the newer standards to add more spe specific functionality on top of 4626 to keep kind of more utility, more diversity of use cases, more standardization. Um, I think that's the that's sort of how things ended up playing out. Well, I guess with that as a pivot point, like let's talk about some of the um, changes you're looking forward to and some of the ERCs that you're working on. So, um, like I, I know we discussed briefly before uh, we started recording that you um, are working on, I think you said three, right? So, can you talk a little bit just about, um, yeah, why, what are the things that you're working on and why, um, of all of the things you can be doing to help like continue to boot up the world computer, why? these are the most uh, exciting things for your time and energy right now. So 4626 itself, I think, covers a super wide range of use cases. And there are, there are three really like major extensions that everyone's kind of talking about. Again, kind of the obvious extensions. Um, so the first one is having native ETH as the underlying asset. So 4626 is literally a token container. It's a token vault, it's a token strategy, whatever mental model helps you kind of imagine how you would use it. But you put a token inside of a container that some yield happens, maybe it's, you can't lose money, maybe you can, but it's all denominated in the same, <laughs> you can or can't, you know, right? Like the DSR is like risk-free in die terms, but MakerDAO could blow up while your die is in there. So um, there are certain vaults that kind of always go up in terms of the underlying and other ones where you might lose some money because you're selling options or whatever. But um, having the token standard be a container for other tokens is great. But what if you want to use Ether, which is not a token? It's its own native protocol asset. So um, for that, I wrote... ERC-7535. So that will take um, ETH as a native asset. That one's super non-controversial. There's really only one way to do it. There's a couple details that are being discussed in the forums, but I don't think that one will take too long to end up becoming final. And the goal for that, that one's actually my favorite because there's two major use cases for it. One is a new version of wrapped Ether, which uses 4626 as a container. So Weath is cool because it's so minimal. Like wrapped ETH 9 is the one that Uniswap v2 and basically all of DeFi uses. Um, and it's very elegant. It's like not even a hundred lines. Um, but it's not super extensible and it doesn't have a ton of integration potential because it doesn't have some of the newer things like um, EIP, 
2612 message signing for permitting and it doesn't have you know the utilities for depositing to and from on behalf of other people so it's really minimal for using it yourself as an eoa but in terms of integration potential there's a lot of extra steps in routing that's very inefficient versus being able to add in these extra parameters that are that come by default with 4626 so i've been working on a new version of wrapped ether for polygon for their new uh paul token on their zk chain so that's going to be i think you know if that gets a lot of lindy and a lot of tbl then that might even be able to port over to other rollups that are evm um which would be really cool and even cooler than that is liquid staking tokens so liquid staking tokens are literally just uh Ether vault that earns yield. So Rapsteed, Wreath, Coinbase ETH, all of these should be 4626. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure who is going to implement it first, but somebody will. And then if they get big enough, then everybody will. So do we need this new extension in order to like have um, to, to really like have uh, 4626 vaults like represent uh staked eth better or is that just a matter of time um we need the extension yeah because otherwise there the details it's there's slightly different ways to do it and so you have a standard that says this is the way to do it and then there's no guesswork so the standard i think was will be the missing piece hopefully that's that's you know that's the bet got it and so for this one what you're saying is it's so non-controversial and it's so um such an obvious win that like you're you're confident that aside for some implementation details and maybe some typos or whatever that are being worked out like this is a pretty smooth sail through the ERC process and like are you working with any um you know major implementers to like to show that this is needed or do, are you able to just communicate that via what the ERC is? Yeah, I think it, it kind of speaks for itself and the forums, there is almost no, there's a couple questions and, but the discussions are really focused on, like you said, the minutia, um, the court, the need for the standard and the main interface and sort of strategy are all super clear. And I think consensus, um, I think that the hard part is really going to be actually getting these, you know, mega liquid staking tokens to actually implement it. So that's, you know, that's the fun part that I get to work on. Let's uh, let's call Sam Kazemian because I don't, I'm not sure if they've released Frax uh, ETH V2 yet. I think there's still time. Well, staked <laughs> Frax ETH that actually is 4626, but it's 4626 on top of Frax ETH. So if they they have like two liquid staking tokens um, or they have one, I guess, ETH derivative called Frax ETH and then they stake that one. So, um, and that's basically the same model that we have with Lido with the caveat that I, I'm not sure if Frax ETH rebases or not. Um, but anyway, yeah. So with ETH, it does rebase, but with Frax ETH, it doesn't. So you have to go stake it but the staking of it is 4626. So I think that that was probably their way of getting around the standard because otherwise there's, I don't know if there's a reason to have a ETH derivative that doesn't rebase, but anyway, 
We can talk to Sam about it, I guess. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you're, you're right that um, because of their construction, which they do for economic reasons and well, that they kind of uh, hack their way around this problem that you're just going to solve at the ERC level. So anyway, I think we've beaten that one to death. What are the other chain, the other extensions that you're building? Yeah. So the there was another one that the Centrifuge team was working on with Superform for asynchronous vaults that have a two-step deposit and withdrawal process. So you basically request a withdrawal or request a deposit, and then it gets executed on the back end. or the, the standard is actually not too opinionated on how the two-step process gets done. It just provides an extra method for initiating the two-step and then um, introspecting which stage you are of whether the, the request is still being pending or whether it's claimable. And then finally you can execute the claim once it's claimable to complete the process. So um, it's an asynchronous asynchronous fault. So the idea here is that you might want to implement a vault in which today the only way to do it directly through the standard is uh, like kind of you do deposits and withdrawals, but you, maybe you want to say like a deposit triggers a one week like unlock process and this new extension will build that directly into the standard. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So this is useful for primarily real world assets where there's some centralized entity that has to go fulfill a request on the back end and there's not immediate liquidity and the core token or um, again, liquid staking tokens. So you actually need both standards to do a liquid staking token, right? Because 7535 on its own is basically just wrapped ether or like compound style. You, know, you can use it in lending markets and stuff. But if you have a withdrawal delay, like you have with Lido or any other liquid staking token, you need to have a request for a withdrawal and then a withdrawal. So it's literally a two-step withdrawal process. And so when you combine these two standards, you get a liquid staking token standard. Um, so that that's kind of the vision for both of them. And I think obviously liquid staking tokens are going to be huge in the next wave of DeFi. They're already huge. So having some extra standardization there, I think can only help. Do you foresee that being uh, difficult to usher through the process? Is there any controversy there? Yeah, actually there's a lot because asynchronicity is very difficult to implement. And a lot of teams have been thinking about since the publication of 4626, they've been thinking about how do you do a two-step 4626. Um, so a lot of teams are like, well, we did it this way and we did it this way. And, and you know, really the whole point is like coming to truth on like what is the, the correct set of engineering trade-offs for elegance, for simplicity. If your production implementation doesn't work, sorry, it just has to work for the next version. Um, but if you have some unique insight that makes the standard better, then it gets included. And that's the kind of the beautiful process um, that happens with the EIPs. And it happened with 4626 too, where a lot of teams were like, well, can you add this thing that we have? And sometimes it was a yes, sometimes it was a no. Cool. All right. So uh, what's the third and like the third extension you're working on? Yeah. So the third one is actually, um, it's a meta EIP. So it's an EIP about extensions, which is the, is the first one that I've written. And this one... I actually am getting I'm getting a much deeper look at the EIP process from the perspective of an EIP editor by trying to change the EIP process itself 
to include some definitions and some extra boilerplate around writing an extension because 7535 is an extension, 7540 is an extension, and in a certain sense, 4626 is an extension of ERC-20. So um, this meta EAP defines what makes an extension and it adds some extra heading and metadata and conventions for actually writing an extension. So um, it's more of like a cool meta EIP that will make future extensions easier to write. Um, I'm not even sure if this one will get included in any, what I think that what might happen is it might end up turning into a smaller edit of EIP one. So the only EIP that's allowed to change in any meaningful way is EIP one. Every other EIP has to become final and then stay final. It's like sort of immutable in the same way that the blockchain is immutable. Um, but EIP one is a living document that describes the most up-to-date EIP process. And so if you want to change the EIP process or add a category or whatever, then you edit EIP one. So this last EIP might actually turn out to get incorporated into the living ERC one, which would also be really cool. No, first of all, just on a personal level, that would be like, like forget, you know, signing into the blockchain forever, like signing into the pro into EIP one, like that's huge. So, uh, good luck for that. And it sounds like that might be the appropriate place for a meta EIP anyway. So, um, like it, it's just, uh, interesting to hear uh, kind of how all these things come together. Yeah, exactly. And all the core devs are really, you know, eager to give or not yeah, eager, maybe is the wrong word, but they're extremely helpful with feedback. Um, very candid, very, um, they've seen everything. So seeing, putting your, their hat on is very helpful for, um, learning about the EIP process, seeing into the raw decentralization that is Ethereum. So I guess with our last few minutes here, um, as somebody who has so much experience, like working, you know, through the process to, you know, actually implementing, to um, getting other protocols on board, to now to the point where you're writing meta EIPs and introspecting on, you know, what the process is. Um, let's say taking like a young Joey Santoro from three years ago uh, as like your target audience, but really anyone today who is trying to, who sees a problem and thinks this shouldn't just be something I solve this. Some, this is something that all of Ethereum can like really benefit and get like a one plus one equals three moment from like, what are some like core insights and advice that you would like, uh, like to share with anyone that's trying to change the chain? I would say that I still believe that crypto is one of the quickest times to impact where it, it's truly an idea meritocracy. There's this culture of if you make something useful, people are going to use it. They might even fork you and compete with you. You know, it's it's like it's like the platonic form of meritocracy and competition in in sort of an economic sense. But it's that's very great for you because if you have really good ideas and you think that they need to exist, this is the industry for you. Like get in there, write an EIP or write a protocol, write a white paper, circulate it. Um, everyone's looking for alpha. Everyone's looking to boost each other up. Like the space is just here. It's sort of this beautiful um, 
this beautiful community where everyone's working to increase the value, increase every all the efforts that we're working on. So, um, you know, I think there's some really positives there. Like you go in, you can build, um, and if your idea is good, then it will get adopted. And then you'll also learn if you have an idea, why it might not be a good idea. You'll learn that really quickly too. And then you'll, you'll, you'll be smarter for the next time that you have an idea. So that's sort of the beauty of, of building in the space. And um, I think it's a great opportunity for anybody who's interested in it. Yeah. And I think, I think you're so right to call out that this industry specifically is the, the industry for people who just like w need to change the world. And there's like so little barrier to entry. And, um, you know, the, th through my personal story and like through the, the lens that I see that uh, is, is this is the only industry that you can like enter the inner circles by like starting by writing threads on Twitter. Right. And I don't know if that's going to be possible in the future, just because I don't know if Twitter is going to be here in the future. But uh, I do know that wherever we're con congregating as a um, community, there is an opportunity for like the next person to just start creating contract content and contributing to the zeitgeist. And like that's whether that's like my story or many of the people I've interviewed on this show. Like that's Vitalik's story. Like literally his dad gave him like a, some information about Bitcoin and he started here by being a like writer and an editor for Bitcoin magazine. So, um, whether you approach it from like the, the technical side or the content side or whatever, like what is actually special here is that the, the distance between like the periphery and like the, the molten core is, um, it's infinitesimal compared to the rest of tech and the rest of uh, society. So, man, Joey, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this talk um, when we didn't even get a chance to talk about like kind of what you're working on today and what you're excited about. So um, will you just give the audience like a little bit of um, like how to find you and uh, if they want to follow more of what you're doing, like just the, the projects that you're putting your time in? Yeah. So my Twitter is Joey Santoro ETH. And my Telegram is Joey Santoro and my GitHub is Joey Santoro. And that's where I'm, <laughs> that's where I'm the most active. Um, so you could DM me, you could follow like what pull requests I'm making and whatever. Cause really right now I'm kind of living in the 4626 Alliance where you can find that, um, that Telegram chat uh, at ERC4626 on Twitter, links to the Telegram, join there. I'm pretty active. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm, I'm working on these days is like getting all these open source ideas and standards that I had in my head since 4626 was first written out there. And then we'll see what kind of projects I find myself into after that. Um, but that that's where I've been kind of doing most of my stuff recently. And that's where you can find me. Yeah, for sure, man. You got to get all the lessons that you learned, like building the last venture out of your head and into the the ether, if you will, so that uh, you got space for the next one, right? And like, as you said in your story, like last time you wrote a paper, urine came out a month later and you realized that like every time you have a big idea, like you got to jump off the cliff. So I'm just like really excited to see uh, what the next jump is for you, man. <laughs>
Thanks, Rex. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited too. And thanks for having me on. It's been awesome jamming with you. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, like really appreciate learning about uh, the ERC process and uh, can't wait to have you on when you start your next venture. So my, Joey, thank you so much and uh, talk to you soon, man. Talk soon.